Guys, we are live. Welcome back. Let me check my note here. We're at 36. One. 858. Pri- What's that? We're at one. Oh, uh, I thought you were talking about episode. <laughs> Sorry for interrupting. The Keep time. Going. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. This is episode 31. But the Bitcoin price, which is probably what people are more interested in than our episode number, is 36000 almost $37,000. This sideways action is, as, as noted on Twitter, driving people a little nuts. Before we dig into that, I mean, let's talk about our guest today, Q. We've got a very special guest joining us today. Yeah, Peter Diamandis, who I was clued into thanks to Jay Shetty, is a scientist turned doctor turned aeronautics engineer. He's a big Bitcoiner. He was fraternity brothers with Michael Saylor. I believe if I did my math right, he was a senior when Saylor was pledging. So we can only just let our imaginations go wild with some of the hazing that may may or may not have happened in the early 80s at at MIT's campus. But one thing that I really admire about Peter, he built this XPRIZE Foundation, and I'm going to have him talk about that a little bit as well, with a $100 million prize pool to literally just give to people who create or innovate breakthrough ideas around space exploration, space development, Mm -hmm. and healthcare. He's very big on longevity. This, this man literally went to Harvard Medical School, founded a space club, and then turned around, left after his third year to go back to MIT to get a master's in aeronautics engineering. And then just because his, his whole spiel is like, you don't quit what you start. He went back to Harvard while working an aeronautics job to finish his medical degree. So what's his general stance on Bitcoin, as far as he's, you know? He's a big believer in Bitcoin. I mean, if you just pull up his Twitter page right now, it's it's among the things that he sort of lists as his interests and passions. Um, so I'm excited to see what he has to say about Bitcoin in space. I mean, this Dude. is a man who invests a ton in space exploration. Like, is, that is his priority in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I sound money in space, it, it makes the most sense. And It'll be interesting to see sort of what he has to say about that type of stuff. I'm excited, man. I've written about 50, at least 50 pages worth of essays about Bitcoin and and space, but also kind of like artificial intelligence, that kind of like physics realm, just being like an interested person, not, not, not a physicist or a scientist by any stretch of the imagination myself, but I'm, I'm interested to see how he ties those things together. I don't know about you, but I think like, from my standpoint, Bitcoin is the only thing that I think will actually help us make progress on the space front, whatever, whatever that might mean to you. I also think it's the only thing I think Bitcoin's the only thing capable of incentivizing, you know, artificial intelligence to basically have programmable goals. And so I'd like to ask him a little bit about that as well. I know it's something that's not touched on much in the community. Bitcoiners are really hilariously like optimistic about Bitcoin, but then a lot of them seem to be totally clueless about machine intelligence, machine learning. Like they, like, like I know actually Safedine is really like anti <laughs> artificial intelligence and we've gone back and forth on, on that kind of stuff. So this should be fun. So I, I won't try to steal his thunder. I absolutely want you to ask him this because like I, I subscribe to his uh, blog email. So every twice a week, roughly, I get an email from him just talking about different things in science, different things he's working on, ways he approaches life, whatnot. 
Uh, and his most recent one was actually about AI specifically and how like he has curated these different algorithms to help give him the news that he wants because he was so sick of like the depressing, sad news. And he like, he essentially offered it to everyone who was like, click this link, go ahead. Like these are the two different algorithms I created that will funnel this type of news and this type of news. If you're interested, like it's free to use too hmm. as well. He's big on AI development. I mean, he he talks a lot about gene therapy, like being a doc. Like, I don't believe he is a practicing doctor, but he is. A- right, he's an MD. So yeah. he talks a lot about genetics. Uh, that was his undergraduate major at MIT, and he talks a lot about you know the way we are developing DNA technology, the way we're developing sort of organ transplant technology. He's like a biohacker kind of guy. Yeah, I, I would educated biohacker. <laughs> like, here's my favorite thing about him. It's science topics can be very dense. I re, I do like to read scientific journals just to you know continue to learn in that capacity. He does an excellent job of really breaking things down to its like lowest level, going down to the first principles and explaining the the why this is important, how this can be used in the future, and like what we need to do to get there. And I always love sort of that framework of the way he lays out his ideas. That's exciting. Yeah, I've got a, maybe we can get a little tinfoil hatty and ask him about uh, the simulation as well. If that's, you know, not, not the most important topic of the day. <laughs> no, definitely. I will say I'm going to very selfishly ask him one question, um, given the fact that he is a physics buff. And I did post on my Twitter yesterday asking for some physics book recommendations. So I will literally. Be oh, asked, you did? I what did. did you get? What were the I, recommendations you got? I've, I only got one response from uh, our former colleague, Lewis Shulman. I believe it's pronounced Feynman. Was Feynman. Feynman. Richard Feynman. That oh, was- dude, you got to read Richard Feynman. You got to read. I'll give you two more. You need Nick Bostrom. Somehow controversial, but when I read his book, I was fucking blown away. I read the book for like three days. It didn't you know, take that long, but super intelligence. It's like he lays out literally like, strategies and paths forwards with regards to machine intelligence so that we don't like screw ourselves as a species Interesting. another another book would be um david deutsch i think it's called beginning of infinity it's been a couple years since i read that one but it's basically talks about how ideas in society that become mimetic help progress us it goes to define that it talks about things like if you could replicate really anything at the level of atoms, like when we get to that level of construction, we will be like much closer to um, outlasting our planet and our solar system. So David Deutsch and Nick Bostrom, I think, go hand in hand covering Nick Bostrom is also the guy who actually proposed the probabilistic argument for the simulation theory. Ooh, all right. That, yeah, that, yeah. He's a big economics guy, too. Yeah, love that. I mean, you guys know me, I'm, I'm big on all these. Uh, tinfoil hat conspiracy theory so i i am with yeah it. i definitely this one's pretty his is pretty compelling man it'll make you like just walk around kind of freaked out for a while <laughs> like it's pretty creepy and then the uh he also writes about like machine learning and the economy and how you know if we don't get these like trading bots under control they're gonna like wreck the economy <laughs> or I'm, they could fully, you know i fully support that I fully yeah. I believe that. I mean, the, they can oh, just create like cascading cell events and wreck businesses. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it. I would argue that that was one of the main catalysts of 2008, and the fact that mm. some of these trades were happening with no understanding by 
the actual bankers themselves. Like, why, why is the computer making this trade? Like, I don't see it, but the computer does. But the thing is, the computer doesn't have, you know, that human touch or empathy realizing, hey, if we, if we push it in this direction and this collapses, you're talking about collapse in the housing market and people are going to be home. Yeah, yeah, that is why they have circuit breakers, Chris. But he writes about how these robots can, like if you program them wrong, they can be like, fuck that, we want to survive, just like Bitcoin. Like we're going to do what we can to like prolongate our life. I'm missing, a. there's like a very specific word I'm looking for that I can't think of and inhibit their own extinction. And they'll just like, they'll, they'll bypass those. By the way, I'm I'm back to drinking coffee. If anyone cares, um, I gave up coffee for 2022, and that did not last long at all. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we're we're only one month in. What, what dude? Can- I gave up like five, six, seven. Whenever we had all hands, like I was doing great, and I felt so way so so good. Um, but then we went to Nashville, and you know what happens in Nashville is just too crazy, and I just I had to get up in the morning. So yeah, you'll never live. Wait, do you drink coffee, Q? What? Nope. What is wrong with you guys? I, Neither dude, of you drink coffee? I haven't. Honestly, like, I'll drink it on a very, very, very rare occasion. And I'll tell you the last time that rare occasion occurred. Bitcoin 21. I was exhausted. Oh, wow. Staying up until like 1, 2 in the mornings and then waking up at like 6, 7 a.m. Um, for me, it just like wrecks my stomach too much. I Yeah, it does hurt your stomach. That's for sure. I'm definitely that person when I see those uh, online memes and whatever, where they talk about like, oh, if you switch from coffee to green tea, like the last ounce of like joy that I have in this world will be robbed. Well, I am that green tea drinker again on occasion. I, I, I like tea. Yeah. I, I like kava. I like like ca- I like teas that are not real tea. Teas that don't. I like teas that don't have caffeine, like sleepy teas. Oh, fair. Fair. This I'm is trying. an important discussion because Bitcoiners are all about lifestyle. So we gotta we gotta be gurus here. We gotta talk about everything. Dude, you want you want <laughs> lifestyle? I am very much like chug a glass of water when I first wake up, like move my body to a point where like it's now awake. And then if I'm not gonna go on a bike ride, then I'll just start doing yoga. That's how I wake up in the mornings. Like by doing it's a good way chug, to wake up. Chugging water starting some form of exercise. And then after that, it's like, all right, well, I'm too awake to go back to sleep anyways. It looks like Peter's here. We can ask him how he wakes up. <laughs> Should I let him in? Are we ready? Uh, yeah, let's cut to a quick commercial break and then uh, bring Peter on board. Cool, cool. Awesome, guys. Welcome back. And we are joined by our guest today, Peter Diamandis. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we did sort of share before you came on a little bit about your background, having studied undergrad at MIT, going over to Harvard for medical school, leaving right before your senior year to go uh, get a master's in aeronautics engineering back at MIT, only to return to finish what you started. And at each iteration of this, you started some form of a space exploration or space development club. Um, we're very excited to have you. I myself have been a, a a reader of your blog post for a little over a year now. So thank you for those words of wisdom that you continue to share. Uh, thank you for joining us, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, a pleasure to, to be here and talking about a fun subject. Um, when I was back at MIT, by the way, my roomie was Michael Saylor. So uh, we've, we've scheduled a lot of uh, conversations. And Michael was an aero astro. I was a few years ahead of him. But I used to cheat off his problem sets. <laughs> You know, everyone, everyone has to have that one friend, you know, it's yeah. always better to surround yourself with the smarter kids. 
Where do you want to start? Let, let's start at the very beginning. How did you learn about Bitcoin? Who, who was it? Who do you yeah. give credit to? Who do you thank for introducing you to the technology? So let's see. In 2008, 2009, I started something called uh, Singularity University with Ray Kurzweil. And, you know, SU was all about understanding all the different exponential technologies that are changing our life, understanding what's the core, where are they now, where are they going, how can you use them? And, you know, in the earliest days, its earliest configuration, it was really focused on AI, robotics, 3D printing, some biotech. VR was still conceptual, really, uh, and blockchain was early theoretical. It was around 2010, 2011, and I was running a graduate studies program at SU for entrepreneurs who wanted to change the world and use the most powerful technologies to do that with, as well as an executive program that would bring in millionaires, billionaires, people just sold their companies looking for what do I do next as an executive? Where do I invest? And it was in that 2010, 11, 12 timeframe that Bitcoin started coming into the conversation about you know, technologies on the periphery, right? We were seeing the co-evolution of a lot of exponential tech uh, riding on top of uh, Moore's law or what Ray Kurzweil calls the law of accelerating returns. And these were technologies that were doubling in power every 12 to 24 months at the same speed of computation. Blockchain and Bitcoin started becoming that conversational subject. And it was really just, uh, we ran something called exponential finance as well at Singular University. And we had a number of the uh, early uh, you know, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, founders and, and rock stars on the stage there. You know, I finally started getting religion, so to speak, uh, in 2014. Uh, I think I, I wrote a blog uh, saying I'm going to sell all my gold and buy Bitcoin. And uh, then in 2015, I run a, a, a program, sort of the highest level singularity program called Abundance 360. And I coach 360 entrepreneurs, CEOs, and about uh, that's for the for the uh, full-up program, then there's a Abundance Digital program, which is about 3,000 entrepreneurs. And in 2015, I brought in a, uh, a Bitcoin uh, ATM machine, and I gave everybody back then, I think it was a, a Bitcoin at 250 bucks, everyone in the audience, and of course, gave them their, you know, on a printed piece of the paper, uh, and you can imagine a few years later, I start getting these emails from people saying, I lost it. Can you send it to me again? <laughs> and I was like, no, I can't. <laughs> so that was, that was fun. Um, and, you know, I just, I am, the work that I do is really trying to give people uh, an understanding of where the world is today, what's happened in the last year, but where we're going in the next two to five years. So entrepreneurs can sort of, be excited about the future, not fearful of it, and can be uh, predictive about how they transform their, <clears throat> their industry. And uh, so I would say, you know, blockchain, crypto, and Bitcoin have been part of the conversation. You know, this year, uh, Abundance 360 is April 20 through 22. I've got Bill Barnheit uh, from Abra on stage with me and Sam Engelbart from Galaxy Digital. Um, uh, on, on stage with me. So, you know, it's, 
it's been a uh, a conversation uh, for some time. Uh, that's wonderful. I mean, I'm I'm so sorry to those of you who lost the Bitcoin that Peter gifted you. Uh, may that be the, the toughest lesson you learned. Um, I'm, trying, I'm trying to figure out this year at uh, at A360 um, what else I'll give them. Uh, you know what? Uh, so I got to figure out what's on the horizon that will be a fun a fun gift. I can't give a Bitcoin anymore. It's just <laughs> not that economically viable. <laughs> um, I mean. You, you touch on a little bit about Singularity University. You have done immense amounts of businesses and different investments in different fields from biomedical engineering type stuff. You talk a lot about genetics in your blog posts, the XPRIZE Foundation with a, a big focus on space exploration. I know that is a huge passion of yours as well. I'd love to maybe talk a little bit about uh, the XPRIZE and space exploration, and then sort of link the two together back with Bitcoin and space sure. uh, by, by the end. But for those of our viewers who aren't familiar, can you maybe just give them a quick rundown yeah. of what the XPRIZE is? Sure. So my own background in space really started in the 60s. It was the Apollo program that was landing humanity on the moon. And then that, that scientific documentary, uh, Star Trek, that showed us where the world was going next. And those two things really captured my heart. I wanted to become an astronaut and my family was a medical family. And so I, I promised I'd go to medical school, which I did. Uh, and while I was at in medical school, I was studying space medicine. I met a whole bunch of astronauts uh, and, and ran experiments on them in the process of the research. And it was, uh, I, as I got to know these guys, it was like, so tell me what what's it like, you know? And it was the realization was you had like a one in a thousand chance of being accepted to the astronaut program, which sucked. And at you know at five four, I had a better chance of becoming an NBA All Star than I did an astronaut. And then the next thing was if you got a chance to fly, half the astronauts had never flown. They were accepted in the astronaut corps. They were called penguins because they had wings but they couldn't fly. And then if you did fly, the average number of flights during your astronaut career was like two flights. Um, and I was like, no, 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 that's not what I want. I want to go every weekend if I want to go, right? It's like, if I'm going to be a scuba diver or a mountaineer, you can do this. So it was just not my vision of becoming a government astronaut and getting to do this, you know, once or twice in my career. And so the question was, you know, I was an entrepreneur in my heart of hearts sort of a, I would call myself a libertarian capitalist if I was going to brand myself. Um, and I was like, okay, well, how do we turn this into a business? Because clearly the government's not going to get us there. And it was then that I started two companies. First, I had started something called the International Space University, which is still around today. It's one of the leading universities for study of space. It's based in Strasbourg, France. Uh, it's called ISU. Uh, then I started a company called Zero Gravity Corporation. Um, and today, I don't know if you guys know this, but everybody can go and experience weightlessness. You can, we have a 727 uh, and we take the airplane up and you do this 50 degree pitch up. And then as you go over the top of the parabola, you're weightless for about 25 seconds. Uh, you can do a lunar parabola where you're a sixth of your body weight instead of 150 pounds, you're 25 pounds. Or a Martian parabola, you're a third of your body weight. And that was amazing. I had a chance to fly Stephen Hawking into zero G, which was probably one of the highlights of my life, you know, taking the world's expert in gravity into zero gravity. And I was just criticized by everybody. You're going to kill the most famous physicist on the planet 
and put your your company out of <laughs> into bankruptcy. But it went way, it went well, and uh, it was great. And I was super proud of of just just everybody saying no, 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 no. And by the way, zero G, a perfect example of bureaucracy, took me eleven years to get FA approval. Eleven years of just battling against the regulatory regime. As it turned out, the only person able to give this approval, even after we did all the engineering, was the head of the FAA. It was the only person, Marion Blakey, uh, amazing uh, leader, who said, you know, I was taking people to Russia with another company I co-founded, Space Adventures, to go and fly on a Soviet-era uh, Aleutian 76 airplane, where you would take off sitting on the floor of the airplane with a parachute on your back in case you had to ditch. I mean, I, I kid you not. <laughs> And, and she was like, well, listen, if you're taking people to Russia, we should be able to allow, you know, American, uh, you know, explorers to do it here. And, and we've flown tens of thousands of people. Uh, and it's, it's like six or seven K uh, for the experience. And it's, you know, more zero G time than you'll get in a suborbital flight on Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic. Um, it's just go zero G.com. Anybody's interested. It's amazing. You're in the middle of a magic show. Um, and then I was given a book by a friend of mine called uh, The Spirit of St. Louis. It was Lindbergh's autobiography. And I had no idea that Lindbergh in 1927 flew from New York to Paris to win a $25,000 prize. I was like, huh, interesting. And this prize put up by a guy named Raymond Orteig inspired nine different teams who spent 16 times the prize money, $400,000 going after this prize for the first person to fly between New York and Paris. And Lindbergh is the most unlikely guy to pull it off. I had only been flying for a couple of years. And he does it and wins the money. And I'm like, that's what I need to do. I need to create a prize for private space flight. And since I had no idea I was going to put up the $10 million, which was the amount that I figured was the right amount to inspire entrepreneurs to go after this, I called it the X prize, and the X was going to be the name of the person who put up the $10 million. And it stood for, you know, Roman numeral 10, for experimental, all kinds of things. It was a great brand. And, and it just took me so long to find our first sponsor, our first benefactor, a woman named Anusha Ansari, that the X stuck around. And we ended up calling it the $10 million Ansari X prize for spaceflight. And we challenged teams to build a private spaceship. Don't care how you fund it. It has to be 90% or more privately funded. We didn't want a government coming in to win this. And the ship's got to be able to carry three adults up to 100 kilometers altitude, officially space, land, and with the same ship, within two weeks, make the flight again. Uh, 26 teams entered. They spent about $100 million. A uh, guy named Bert Rutan, who had built the Voyager around the world airplane, uh, backed by Microsoft co-founder and billionaire uh, uh, Paul Allen, uh, funded the development of Spaceship One. And on October 4th of 2004, Spaceship One won the $10 million X Prize. Richard Branson swooped in, bought the rights to create Virgin Galactic. And we had changed the laws and I think changed the perspective that people thought, oh, wow, it really can be done privately. And Capital started flowing in. Uh, you know, I had known Jeff Bezos since 
college, I had started a group called Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, SEDS, still, you know, in 100 plus campuses around the world. Jeff, I was at MIT, Jeff started the Princeton chapter. You know, it was interesting to see Jeff go into Amazon. I met with him one day. I said, what are you doing with this Amazon thing? I thought you were like interested in space. He goes, well, I'm going to make my money in Amazon and then go spend it in space. A, a simple two-step plan, which he's held true to, actually. And so he, he built uh, Virgin Galactic. I'd known Elon for 22 years now and started SpaceX and, and Virgin Galactic and a number of other space companies. And we really have a vibrant commercial spaceflight industry. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, I would have never imagined it would have taken 17 years from 2004 to 2021 for commercial flights to start starting, get started. Uh, it's taken a while, a lot slower than I thought. But so that's the X Prize. On the heels of that first $10 million prize being won, we've launched $100 million. I'm sorry, we've launched $300 million in prizes for mapping the ocean floor, uh, for, um, we just launched a $100 million prize that Elon funded for removing gigaton level carbon out of the atmosphere, uh, feeding the next billion people uh, for, from stem cell grown uh, foods. Uh, we've done an education, uh, carbon extraction out of smokestacks, a whole bunch of different areas. And my next one, which we can talk about, uh, we get to the longevity conversation, which ties back to Bitcoin as well, is uh, I'm working on a $100 million uh, uh, age reversal X prize, which is near and dear to my heart. So that's a lot. Let me pause there. No, I mean, I, I will let our, our audience really digest everything that you've shared. I, I saw a couple of comments about uh, Eastside Tony say that he watching you speak, hearing you speak makes him wish that he paid a little bit more attention back in school. Uh, it's never too late to pick up the book, Eastside Tony. Dude, I am, I am reading every day. I, am, I spend half my day learning. Uh, either on audibles or reading or websites, I consume nonstop. So never too late. Absolutely right. No, and I do. I, I'd like to actually transition over to the longevity conversation as that sort of. I know, just I believe it was a couple of weeks ago you were sending out in your blog post talking about you know some of the uh, new advancements being done in this space for both age reversal as well as organ transplants. What are things in the longevity space that you are very much excited about yeah. um, places that you want to really spend that hundred million dollars. Yeah, sure. So first of all, you know, when I think there are two natural ties, maybe three natural ties to Bitcoin, you know, I, when I tweeted out, you know, Bitcoin equals longevity or longevity equals Bitcoin. I mean, we're going to be going from, if you remember the human lifespan a hundred thousand years ago was like 28 years old. Uh, that was the average human lifespan. And we extended it 100 years ago to like early 40s. And now it's, you know, getting to 80. The question is, what happens when your lifespan is 120 or 150? I was just on a call with Ray Kurzweil, my co-founder at Singularity and the author of Singularity is Near. And he talks about the idea of longevity escape velocity that there's going to be a moment in time where science is extending your life for more than a year for every year that you're alive. And so, you know, when asked, when do you think that is, his answer is in the next decade or so. So what happens if all of a sudden, instead of thinking, ah, I'll make it to 70 or 80 or maybe 90, where you're shooting for much more than that, 
what store of value are you using uh, to maintain your wealth over a century time frame, not just you know a decade time frame? So longevity is is very real, um, and when we talk about longevity, we're really talking about age reversal. Uh, so I am chronologically uh, 60 years old, born in May of 1961. Biologically, I'm 49 and a half. You can check your epigenetics and you can see how old you are. And I'm doing a range of things to try and get myself 20 years younger, right? And then this is with existing technologies. There are a slew of new technologies coming online that have the potential to significantly reverse your biological age. And I'll talk about that in a moment. You know, uh, I actually built an AI engine called uh, Futuroscope that uh, goes out there and it, it searches all the world's news every day, all the journal articles, newspaper, magazines, tweets, looking for longevity-related news. And then it, uh, it identifies which of those news are the highest credibility uh, and which are non-dystopian because I have enough dystopian news coming from every place else. I have zero interest in getting any more. And so I get a feed every day uh, on something called longevityinsider.org of the top 15 breakthroughs uh, in longevity. And that helps shape my mindset of like, holy shit, this is really happening. This is real. I can start to change my, my perspective on the future. And so if, if anyone's interested in, in that, you just go to longevityinsider.org and it's a 60 second uh, uh, registration is free. You can unsubscribe anytime, but it will show you everything going on in the world uh, that we should all care about. And I think there's no bigger business on the planet than giving people health. So let me double click on this further. We have a range of things. I've got a book coming out with Tony Robbins in uh, a week, actually, uh, on February the 8th called Life Force. And it's, we spent two years talking to 150 of the world's top experts and chronicling all the breakthroughs going on in, in stem cells and exosomes, in uh, immunotherapies, in, I mean, a whole, a whole slew of things. It's, uh, it's a book that will change the way you see the future. Um, some of the favorite stories from the book are, in particular, uh, we have a brand new set of technologies for regrowing all of us organs. So if you think about it today, if you need a, a kidney or a heart transplant or lung transplant, you're going on waiting lists and a lot of people die on the list. Uh, you know, you're effectively hoping that someone, you know, crashes, uh, is brain dead and has an, you know, HLA mat match to your organs and can give you a, a transplant. Not the best way to be thinking about it, but what if instead we could manufacture for you a spare liver, lung, heart, kidney, not yet a brain yet, but this tech is coming and there's like three or four different approaches and it's not theoretical, it's happening right now. And so I write about those. Dean Kamen, one of my favorite heroes, the creator of First Robotics, uh, 1,500 patents, one of those brilliant investors of our age, I'm sorry, brilliant investor, inventors of our age, has a, uh, an organization called the Advanced Regenerative Manufacturing Institute, ARMI, in New Hampshire. And um, ARMI has received massive grants from the government, and they have built machines that can go from 
a pluripotent stem cell, take one of your cells from your body, turn it into a stem cell, I won't go into that details, and then over 45 days, use that to manufacture an organ. They have demonstrated building uh, bone, ligament, bone um, elements for like knee and ankle transplants. They're working next on a pediatric heart, but the idea is a machine, like a manufacturing closed circuit system that goes from a cell, differentiates them, creates enough pluripotent stem cells, differentiates them, and effectively creates an organ. Pretty amazing. I mean, I've seen it my own eyes. I take a group of people every year on a longevity platinum trip uh, from within my Abundance 360 community and just blown away. Uh, then you've got folks like Martine Rothblatt and George Church. Martine is the CEO of uh, United Therapeutics. George is one of the leading genomicists on the planet at Harvard Medical School. They have basically reprogrammed the cells of pigs. It turns out that a pig is the same size, heart, liver, lung, kidney as a human being. And the idea is that you can... Um, modify the surface antigens of that pig and get rid of the pigs, what's called endogenous retroviruses, viruses that are in the genome of a pig that could infect a human. Um, and you can, uh, you can grow the pig and then transplant those organs into a human. And that's already been done for kidneys and it's just beginning. What's another thing on the longevity front? Uh, so let me ask you a question. Uh, you have 3.2 billion uh, nucleotides, um, you know, A, T, Cs, and Gs in your genome from your mom and from your dad. You have them at birth. Uh, you have the same exact genome when you're 20, 30, 50, 80, 90. If you have the same genome, why do you look different? Right? I mean, it's a, an interesting question, right? No one's, I haven't heard that really vocalized anywhere near enough. Um, it turns out that it's not the genome you have. It is which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off. What's called your epigenome, epi from the Greek word for on top of or above. And your epigenome controls your, you know, genetic concert of what, what proteins are being produced, what regulatory genes are on, what's off. And as you're aging, What's happening is that the genes that you'd like on get turned off and the genes that you'd like off are turned on. And you have this epigenetic drift that occurs. And um, the question is, can you reverse it? Can you go back to the, you know, the optimal set of uh, uh, genes on and off? And in December, 2020, uh, David Sinclair, one of the heroes of, of uh, this world age reversal, author of an amazing book called Life Force, I'm sorry, Life, Lifespan. Tony, my book is called Life Force. So Lifespan and Life Force, the two books I'd, I'd recommend. He published in the cover of Nature Magazine that he was able to reverse the aging of the visual system of aged mice, basically bring them back to a youthful set and reverse blindness. A few months later, that was demonstrated in the hearts of mice, and as I talk to George and David, George Church and David Sinclair and others, the belief is that we'll be able to do this in humans as well. So this $100 million age reversal X prize that I'm working on right now, we've 
we've raised about 70, 80% of the money. If anybody's interested and wants to be part of this, uh, you can email my executive assistant, Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R at xprize.org um, or tweet at me at Peter Diamandis. Anyway, long story short, uh, we hope to launch this $100 million prize uh, in the first half of, of this year. And it's going to be asking teams to demonstrate reliable technology that can reverse your aging at a minimum of 20 years, right? So if you get to 60, you can apply it, bring yourself back to 40, and then, you know, age out and then do it again and again and again. And maybe some of the technologies will take you even uh, younger. Then there's a whole range of other technologies, synolytic medicine, stem cells, exosomes, wind pathway manipulations. All of this is in the book, and you'll get a lot of this from Longevity Insider on a daily basis. I, I have a quick question about that, Peter, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. What are, what are some of the proactive steps? I mean, this might be things yeah. that are tried do? and true, but like, I mean, what do you do day, day by day? Yeah. So it really comes down to the basics and I'll give you the fundamentals here. Um, one is I try and, and take in at least two liters of water behind him, uh, two liters of water a day. Uh, I'm on a maximally, you know, uh, whole plant diet. Uh, I add, I'm more Mediterranean, so I'll add some fish and eggs, but I'm staying away from, uh, from red meats to the maximum degree possible. I was vegan for a number of years. I don't, you know, I'm Mediterranean by background. Not every food is the best thing for every person. Depends on what your, what your background is. And so I will go, I'll tend towards vegan slash Mediterranean in my diet. I haven't eaten this morning. I will typically uh, do fast through the morning. I'll eat lunch about two, dinner around six, and we'll try and, and maintain my intermittent fasting between, you know, 8 p.m. and, and 2 p.m. So I'll, I'll fast for uh, 18 hours a day, then eat for a six-hour window. That activates uh, the sirtuin system which helps DNA repair and a number of other things. Um, so that's, and then the most important thing on diet is lose the sugar. Sugar is poison. Sugar causes heart disease. It causes neuroinflammation in your brain. Uh, it causes inflammation in your body. Uh, it's hard. You know, I'm not an angel, but I, I look at it as, as something that I uh, am actively choosing to do in the moment and not doing the rest of the day, right? So that's diet. Um, sleep, I will uh, pretty consistently get eight hours of sleep. I wear my aura ring. I monitor it on my, on my uh, phone. Uh, and I used to, in medical school, used to pride myself on how little sleep I could get, right? It was like, you know, sleep when I'm dead. But that's no longer the case. I am heads down focused on, um, on being asleep by typically 9.30 at night. I'll get up at 5.30 in the morning. Um, and those first two, three hours of the day are when I write my blogs, my books, work on my business plans, uh, when I'm, I'm sharpest. Um, so sleep is critical. How do you sleep good? I have a Manta mask, a really great eye mask. I bring the temperature of the room down to 65 degrees Fahrenheit. I have a cooling mattress underneath um, that helps me. Um, I don't watch TV in bed. I'll typically listen to an audible and put it on a 15 minute timer. And it's like being read a bedtime story and it puts me to bed. 
so that's my sleep. Exercise is key. If, if there's one area I need to do and want to do more, it's more exercise. So I will try and get 10,000 steps a day. Uh, and I will try and get a reasonable weight workout twice a week and a lightweight workout every day, right? Exercise is one of the most important signals to keep the body youthful. Um, we talked about sleep, exercise, diet, um, mindset um, is probably one of the most important things. There is no question uh, people with an optimistic mindset, an abundance mindset, live longer than pessimists. Um, you know, you can make, draw your own conclusions, but it's like seven years. It's like something significant. Uh, and so mindset wise, who do you hang out with? Do you hang out with people who are younger than you that are, you know, excited about the future? Like, this is awesome, right? It's like, you know, you're, you enjoy being with them or people who are curmudgeons and like, you know, reading the obituaries. And then what do you read? Like, our brains are neural nets, right? We're hearing about AI and neural nets all the time. Our brains are neural nets. And the same way that you train a neural net by showing it image after image after image of cats, if you show it a dog, it's going to say, no, it's a cat because it knows nothing better. So what are you training your neural net? Are you watching the crisis news network, you know, Fox News and, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, newspapers? I've stopped. I'm on a complete and total media diet. I read uh, my, uh, you know, longevity insider, uh, every day, uh, there's another, uh, AI engine I created, uh, called future loop. So futureloop.com, I get all of the converging exponentials as they're applied to, uh, as they're applied to, uh, to industries. And it's all positive semantic. These are how these technologies are transforming. This is where the future is going. It allows me to see the future. And I educate myself that way. I don't really need to hear about every murder and every affair and every despot on the planet. I really don't. You know, if, if it's going to impact me, I'll hear about it from my mom or somebody. Um, you know, I just, I really focus on the things that are important to me. And so mindset is really important. So those, Alex, are the things you can do right now. Um, and the last thing is don't die from anything stupid. So uh, what I mean by that, wear your seatbelt, if you're skiing, wear your helmet. And then every year I go for, I call it a digital upload. Uh, I built a company called Fountain Life. You can find it at fountainlife.com. And I go for a full up diagnostic, full body MRI, brain, brain vasculature MRI, coronary and AI enabled coronary CT DEXA scan, genomics, every year I upload myself 150 gigabytes of data. Why? Because we're all optimists about what's going on inside our bodies and we have no idea, no idea. You know, you've all heard about your friend or family member or coworker who, you know, keeled over. It didn't just happen instantly. There had been something that had been going on in aneurysm, cancer, whatever the case might be. So every year I fully digitize myself and I will find something eventually but I will find it at the very beginning and then be able to, uh, to address it. So these are the tricks and trades uh, to allow you to intercept this longevity escape velocity. And this is gene therapies, CRISPR technologies, synolytic medicines, stem cells, all these things coming down the pike, not in 50 years or 30 years or 20 years, this decade, next 10 years. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. 
Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. You want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. I love it. Thanks so much for sharing those uh, tips and tricks. I'm on board with most of those. That's a lot coming at you, but thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I personally... The thing that spoke to me the most is I, I have the worst time sleeping no matter what. Um, so I, I took all of those notes down on the sleeping, I have been on a, a plant-based diet now for some time prioritizing that and then fish eggs and on occasion, other types of meat. No. Um, I'm adamant on no sugar. Nice. I love that. Nice. I love that. That's what one thing that you definitely highlight. Um, I want to talk now for a moment though on longevity, because based on what you're saying, we're, we're in the decade where we're going to see science advance so much that all of us alive right now should start to see the benefits of that. And our lifespan really should start to look, if expectations are correct, our lifespan will look much, much longer out than what it currently says based on the data we have at hand. What effect is that going to have on a global society? And yeah. what effect is that going to have on the global economy when you don't I don't mean to say it crassly, but when you don't have the churn of human beings and now you are. <laughs> I love that. Uh, that's a great, those are really important questions. So, and then you can wrap it back to, to Bitcoin, importantly. There was a study done six months ago, uh, jointly by Harvard, London School of Business and Oxford. And it looked at the global economic impact of adding just one year of healthy life for everybody on the planet. Adding just one year of healthy life adds $38 trillion to the global economy with a T. That's insane, right? But what it means at the top of your game, right? Like when historically society would say you're ready to retire, if you're feeling great, if you've got the vitality, the intellect, you know, the mobility, uh, you're going to want to keep going. People retire if they're ill or don't have the energy. And what we're talking about, and all of this goes back to energetics. We haven't talked about this and we can, you can ask more questions about sort of uh, the whole tie between DNA repair and um, the epigenome and NAD and metformin and M NMN and NR and all these other supplements and so forth. It's all tied together, but it's about energy in the body. Do you have the energy to be vital, to be excited about life, to want to keep going? If you do, the last thing you want to do is retire, right? Instead, you know, at 65 or 70, you're going to say, I'm going to start another company. Um, and that's the energy that I think will add tremendous value to society. So, uh, you know, people, one of the fears people have is around 
uh, population explosion, right? There was this bomb in, the, in this uh, book in the 1960s called the population bomb that really set us off in a, uh, uh, what has turned out to be a very wrong direction. So it turns out that we're more likely to actually uh, have a problem from a population fizzle than a population bomb. What does that mean? Uh, in the 1950s, if you looked at the average number of children per family globally, it was about 5.7 children per family. Uh, today, globally, it's at 2.4. The population replacement level is 2.1, accounting for childhood deaths and, and accidents and so forth. The U.S. is below the replacement level. Our population uh, rate is going down. Japan is going down. Many parts of Europe is going down. So we are likely to peak at you know, nine, nine and a half billion people on the planet and then have a very rapid decline. So I was interviewing Elon uh, uh, when we launched together his $100 million gigaton carbon removal XPRIZE back in April. And I brought up the subject. He goes, yeah, I'm not worried about overpopulation at all. I'm seriously worried about underpopulation. Are we going to get the laborers to do, you know, the people to do the work that needs to get done? Um, and there are, you know, two answers to that. One is longevity is an important part of that game. Uh, and the second is going to be bringing robotics and AI into the picture, uh, where you're going to be partnering with those technologies to enable what you want to do. Right, so those are, are most definitely coming. Love that. Um, I want to touch on a little bit about sort of what are the, um, or how do you see this digitization of humanity? You talked a little bit about how you upload yourself digitally every year. The metaverse is now becoming nomenclature in day-to-day -day language. Do you, do you view the metaverse as something inherently good for humanity's step forward? Or are you a little, not, I wouldn't say afraid, but like hands off. Yeah. So it's funny, uh, literally the 90 minutes before this call, before the, our, our, our uh, session here today, I had all of my Abundance 360 members uh, in the metaverse. And we did a 90 minute metaverse event. Uh, we used a platform uh, called spatialweb.net that a dear friend, Eric Poulier, uh, invented. And uh, we all met in the metaverse, and we were just using a browser, walking around, running into each other, uh, having conversations. So it's not like, you know, when you're on Zoom, you're locking to these squares, and that's it, right? You're like the Brady Bunch view. In the metaverse, you are freely working around a three-dimensional space. You're saying, I'll meet you over in that room. I'll go and let's go watch this video together. And you're moving in this three-dimensional space. Uh, and at the end of the session, I brought Ray Kurzweil on uh, screen with me and did a Q&A with him in the metaverse. And everybody's watching and asking questions. And it feels like you're in a virtual space. You know, we'll have the metaverse with your, you know, VR and AR glasses. We'll also have a metaverse, which is really Web3. It's the overlay on top of Web2, right? Where So in this metaverse just now, we had 25 NFTs we, we minted uh, for the 25 modern day innovators from, uh, uh, from uh, uh, Satoshi to Larry Page to 
uh, Ray Kurzweil to everybody and people walked around to these NFT vending machines and collected their NFTs while walking and having conversations. But we're heading towards Web3, which is really the intersection of, you know, XR and AI and blockchain, where it's the, you know, the web of value exchange versus information exchange. Uh, and so I'm a massive fan. The only part that I uh, have any caution on is really making sure that people get exercise. So one of the things I don't have since uh, we, I shifted offices, I have a treadmill desk that I would take my meetings. Now I'm you know, in Santa Monica here by the water. And so I'll grab my phone and I'll go out and do my conference calls and Zoom calls walking along the strand just trying to get those 10,000 steps in a day. And I gamify that. I love that. You got to make it fun. I always yeah. say like working out to just work out is sometimes tough. You got to find enjoyment in that. Absolutely. I'm curious because we did talk a little bit. You gave us and our viewers some tips on, you know, how do we right now uh, keep ourselves healthy for longevity's sake? Um, one thing though, that I'm kind of curious about, what are your personal rules around screens and screen time. You know, as we enter the metaverse, we're going to spend more time online. Yeah. How does that, how are we going to balance that with, you know, human to human interaction? Yeah. So great. I'm a dad of two twin boys, 10 and a half years old. And I am constantly monitoring their screen time because left to their own devices, they will spend every second of the day uh, watching YouTube or on Roblox. Uh, and it's a, it's a challenge. I am, I crave personal connection, right? Last year, I had to take my Abundance 360 Summit uh, and year-round program virtual. Uh, we've retained virtual element for most of it, but we have our getting together end of April again uh, in person. Uh, and I crave seeing everybody again. One of my members this morning said, I heard it's going to be virtual in April again. Please don't do that, please. And I was like, no, 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 no. It's a thousand percent in person. No, it's really going to be in person. He's like, thank God. Uh, and uh, so we need that, that connection, right? We need to differentiate two different parts of our lives. One part is learning. The other part is socialization. And we are social creatures. So, um, yeah, I, what can I say? I'm guilty of too much computer time, hunched shoulders and not enough walking, but I use my walking app to try and make sure I get that in. Other thing that keeps me going is my 10 year, you know, my 10 year old boys, I will spend as much time with them doing sports and playing outside. And I need to walk the walk when I say, get off your computers. <laughs> I can respect that. We could, we could all do better. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to start a little bit of the conversation that I know Alex is really going to be the, the meat of conversing with you on space and Bitcoin and yeah. how those two get married. Um, as we continue to expand to the next frontier, where or how is Bitcoin going to be incorporated in that? How, how are these transactions going to happen at a pace that is accessible for both those off planet as well as those on? So one of the interesting questions that you need to ask yourself is we're, first of all, we're we're at the verge of the human race becoming a multiplanetary species, right? Everything we've ever known, seen, hear, felt, our entire history of humanity is on this little precious gem. And everything we hold of value on Earth, metals, minerals, energy, real estate, are in near infinite quantities in space, right? There's an infinite amount of energy and of real estate and metals and minerals 
you know, one of the companies I started years ago uh, was a, a asteroid mining company. Didn't work out for a number of reasons, but I'm going to take another crack at that because these asteroids are trillion dollar assets. So as we move off the planet, and I am so thankful that uh, Elon and Bezos are both uh, committed to literally spending every dollar they have to make humanity multiplanetary species. One of the questions is what language we're going to use, what form of governance we're going to use, what cultural norms we're going to use, what form of monetary systems are we going to use? We don't think about this, right? We don't think about uh, the notion that our, that we're speaking English right now um, because of who happened to basically uh, you know, land in this territory of Earth uh, and, uh, uh, and dominate it, right? Versus Brazil speaking Portuguese because uh, you know, Portugal claimed it, right? There was a moment in time in the, in the, I think it was the 1300s where China's great explorers almost made it to the Americas. And if they had, we'd all be speaking some version of Mandarin. So it's like he or she who gets there first sort of creates the de facto plans. Uh, and it's true for monetary systems as well. So, um, you know, when I think about it, there are going to be two new places that we can experiment with, vert with, uh, with monetary systems and governance systems and have the opportunity to start with tabla rasa, with the clean sheet of paper. And that's in the virtual world and in space. The only other way that you're doing this is by, you know, you know dominating, taking over a country and so forth, which is kind of, kind of tough. So I think obviously Bitcoin for all the reasons that you guys know and your listeners know very well, has a, um, a first in line opportunity to be the dominant means of, of currency uh, as we move off the planet. Let me just plug in my computer one second. All right, Alex, please, you're going to ask a question. Oh, yeah, I um, I tend to see, you know, Bitcoin as uh, the catalyst for more progress on these fronts. You, you mentioned how difficult it can be to make the advances that you see become reality just due to the nature of bureaucracy and 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 the fiat system and i really see bitcoin as like a kind of orthogonal method for people who who think similarly to you optimistically about the future the future of space travel um you know and and in the future of of money in general can can transfer that value in a permissionless way to actually build these things and execute these projects. So I'm very yeah. bullish and optimistic. On that I, I, I agree, right? I mean, the figure I remember hearing, and I'm curious if, uh, if it numbers are correct, that when, not if, when Bitcoin hits 100K or 200K, that will have more crypto billionaires than billionaires from any other industry. And the thing that uh, that is true about the players in the crypto space are they are tech forward uh, and they are more optimistic and more um, interested in making the world a better place. And so when the majority of wealth is willing to uh, take, you know, put capital, capital is energy, right? Bitcoin is energy. It's all energy. It's where do you put that energy to work? Um, 
And so a lot of the work that I do with the XPRIZE and with my Abundance 360 community and all is around creating a better world. Uh, it's, you know, I fundamentally believe the world's biggest problems are the world's biggest business opportunities, right? Want to become a billionaire, help a billion people. Uh, and, and that's a beautiful alignment. And, you know, my purpose and my mission, ultimately, I have, you know, in the near term, it's inspiring, guiding entrepreneurs to create a hopeful, compelling and abundant future for humanity, right? Because entrepreneurs are the ones who find problems and solve problems. And just that, that, that virtuous cycle just makes the world, you know, higher level, better problems. Um, and the other part of it is uplifting every man, woman and child. So AI and, and blockchain and, and Bitcoin have the ability to uplift every man, woman, and child. Where, you know, if you think about it today, the poorest child on the planet on a smartphone, uh, which have gotten down in price to tens of dollars, uh, and the child of Larry Page, the co-founder of Google, Google is the same for them. It's not a little bit better for Larry Page or Sergey Brin. It's identical to every other person using it. It's a complete democratized and demonetized system. And we're going to see the same thing occurring in education and in health. Both are ridiculously uh, broken systems. You know, if anything, my hope is to topple or to help support getting those systems completely reinvented, healthcare and education this decade. You know, because the best healthcare and the best education in the world will come from an AI-enabled platform that is free and equivalent for every human on the planet. I love it. I uh, one of the questions we we wanted to ask you that's a little a little off this topic, but on the same beat is, uh, what do you think about um, Nick Bostrom's uh, probabilistic argument that we're in a simulation, and do you does this fall in line with your um, Rather yeah, optimistic I, mean, views. I am. I feel 100% we're in a simulation. I have zero doubt we're in a simulation, and it doesn't change anything I do. Right. So, listen. I'll give you my version of uh, Nick's argument, which uh, you know I came up on my own. If you look at our gal our universe, uh, 14, call it roughly 14 billion years old. Right. If you ask, what's the what's the highest atomic number element required for life to exist? Uh, you could probably say something like iodine. And the question is, when did iodine come into existence in the universe? And it turns out, you know, elemental evolution occurs as stars go through a life cycle, collapse, explode, and in that process, spew out higher atomic elements, and then that recollapses into stars. So it turns out the atoms and subatomic particles of our body have been part of about 100 different stars over time on the average. And so iodine came into existence about a billion years after the Big Bang. Let's add three, four, five, six, seven billion years just for margin. And let's say that life, that the elements to create life uh, and the number of stars and planets existed eight billion years after the Big Bang. Our star system came into existence about 10 billion years after the Big Bang, and our, we've been around here on Earth for about uh, 4 billion years. So I would posit that life could have come into existence a couple of billion years before life on Earth came in. And so 
the speed of change that we're seeing right now, I can't imagine what humanity will be like a hundred years from now, let alone a thousand or a million or a billion. And so where are we seeing ourselves going? We are creating extraordinary virtual worlds, right? We're seeing massive computational power that is still growing. Moore's law is still tearing ass through the universe here. It's still doubling every 18 months and has not slowed down for you know, nearly 60 years. Um, so what's it gonna look like when we have a billion times the computational power, the trillion times, it's gonna happen during our lifetimes. And then we add quantum computing onto that. Well, we're gonna be able to create real wor wor virtual worlds that are indistinguishable from our actual world. Uh, and then add on to that, that Ray Kurzweil's prediction is that we'll have human level AI by 2029, eight years from now, seven, seven years from now. So what happens when you create this absolutely uh, self-consistent virtual world and you put human level AIs into that world and you let them go and explore their world? So I don't think that we're living in a simulation. I think we're living in an nth generation simulation, a simulation within a simulation within a simulation ad infinitum. And doesn't change the thing I do, a thing I say, how I hang with my kids, how long I want to live, any of that. So yeah, there you go. That's uh yeah, I <laughs> I agree with you. I'm I'm glad that you you've also looked into uh Nick Bostrom. I think that's someone we should also continue this conversation with. Q, I'll pass it back to you for the next question. I I fully believe we live in a simulation. And right now, my mind, I don't think anyone else here watches the show Rick and Morty. Uh, but what for the viewers who do, who maybe some of what Peter was saying went over the head, uh, that episode where Rick creates a battery, where in this battery, he's created life and society. And within that life and society, they have created their own version of a battery and life and society and so on and so forth. That is essentially what this nth simulation. I haven't seen that episode, but I'll have to look for it. It, it is honestly to a T what you have described. That's and it, it is very funny to watch the realization of these characters when they're yeah. like, wait a minute, what? Um, I want to present a question that I have actually been thinking of as we've had this conversation around space um, and it's presented from our audience. Um, but how, how do you envision Bitcoin being used in Mars or just space in general, given the time lapse? Do you envision that being a problem as far as each block being mined every 10 minutes and validated? And well, we have so that is a question I have not, uh, I've not thought about, right? We are, um, there is going to be, we're going to see space divided into regions, right? There is near earth space, which is everything that's occurring within earth orbit, uh, typically within a few hundred miles. This is where we have the space station, the space shuttle used to fly, Falcon uh, Dragon flies right now. Um, there's geostationary orbit, 22,300 miles above and at that orbit, it takes one day for a satellite to go around the same time that the planet goes around one day. So a satellite stays geostationary above that spot. Uh, and geostationary orbit in is likely to be one region. You then have the moon. Uh, the moon is a 2.4 second time delay uh, to send a speed of light there and, and back. Uh, then you're going to have other regions of space. Uh, will that be around Mars? Will it be uh, around self-flying colonies, which 
Jeff Bezos and I had the same mentor, a guy named Gerard K. O'Neill out of, out of Princeton, who wrote about how you manufacture space colonies, like massive space colonies, like million person space colonies on a cylinder that rotates and you're living on the inside of the cylinder as it rotates. And you build that out of lunar material, asteroidal materials. So will we have uh, different chains for different, um, for different regions? I don't know, and I don't have an answer for that, but, you know, speed of light, you know, unless we're able to create uh, sort of photonic twinning that is independent of uh, and a quantum internet of some type, who knows? That, that makes total sense. I mean, we have a few other problems to deal with to get ourselves <laughs> to space <laughs> before we're worrying about how we're transacting in space. Um, you talked a little bit also about you know AI and human AI being by the end of this decade. We have uh, your friend Elon Musk touting his AI robots that is now the new priority over the Cybertruck. What out of the AI space? I'm is very happy the, about that. Um, uh, what else out of the AI space is what most exciting to you that you're really focused on? So I'll go slight tangent off of that, which is I'm uh, pretty pumped about connecting my brain to the cloud. Um, so, uh, you know, there's this whole area of, of BCI, brain computer interface, which is our brains have a hundred billion neurons and those neurons have a hundred trillion synaptic connections and everything you have learned, the wiring of your reactions, your reflexes, all of that is inside those neurons and those synaptic connections. And we have a very slow input-output system. Our eyes, our ears, our touch, super slow. You know, compared to anything else, it's like hundreds of bits uh, per second compared to like, you know, gigabits and terabits. Um, and the other problem is our brain's landlocked by our skull. Uh, we just, it's really hard to grow your brain bigger. Uh, if your skull got bigger, you'd be killing your mom during childbirth. And so there is, in fact, the surface of our, of our uh, brain, uh, it's called the neocortex, which is the higher level functions of the brain. You see this folding, which occurred, which was the means by which the surface area of the neocortex got more because of these, like taking a dinner towel and folding it up. But there's a, a way around this. So my phone and your phone, right? Uh, it has a certain amount of computation and sensors on board. And if you want to do something uh, complicated, you can ask it a question or ask it to evaluate an image or whatever, but it's going to go from the phone to the edge of the cloud. It's going to go to the 4G or 5G network where the processing gets done and the answer gets sent back. So the same thing is going to happen with our brains, uh, where we're going to have our, we're going to think and Google, right? or we're gonna think and have a telepresence uh, someplace. So that's super exciting. You know, Elon's behind Neuralink. Uh, another friend of mine, uh, Matt Engel is behind uh, uh, one of the other top companies called um, Paradromics. And then there's Mary Lou Jepsen, uh, super proud of her work. Uh, and she's open water. Open water is using laser, red laser holography to be able to go through the the scalp and skull because red light is translucent to your to your skin so if i 
you know, if I put my finger up here, I'm not sure it's going to work. Oh, here we go. My finger turns red and the red wavelengths go through skin and through bone. Um, so she has built the system to be able to like interrogate individual neurons just by, by this, uh, this red laser light. Amazing stuff. So Ray's prediction is 2035, we're going to have high bandwidth brain-computer interface. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing all these companies moving in that direction. Have you ever done uh, transcranial uh, magnetic stimulation? Uh, I have not, but desire to. Have you? Yeah, I have. It's, it's it like? very, it's, uh, it's a little bit spooky. Uh, <laughs> you have kind of like, I guess the opposite of phantom limb syndrome where, you know, your limbs, your thoughts, you can shut down your whole frontal lobe for a few minutes and you, you, you find yourself like very clear, able to do math that perhaps you couldn't have done before, you know, you know, all the, all the noise, uh, in the thought process kind of shuts down, but it's, it's interesting stuff. It's very similar to how you can, you know, get into the brain with the, with the red light. It's just a direct focused very very focused magnet on specific parts but or the other option is you know dmt so that's <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> a little bit more my speed <laughs> um i do want to ask uh one of the questions from twitter specifically yeah. about bitcoin the lightning network and uh credit card companies but how soon or what factors need to go uh happen in your mind or opinion, for Bitcoin to reach popular adoption to the degree of Visa and MasterCard so that when we go to a grocery store? You, Great you question. Great question. So I want to frame this. I, I had a chance to write three books. First was Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think. The second was Bold, How to Go Big, Create Wealth, and Impact the World. And in Bold, uh, I talk about something called the six Ds of exponentials. And what does that mean? When you digitize something, in the earliest days of its growth, it is deceptively slow, right? The first digital camera took 0.01 megapixel images. The next year it was 0.02 and 0.04 and then 0.08. To the board of Kodak, it all looked like zero. It was like this flat, small doubling of numbers. The third D is disruptive. It goes from deceptive to disruptive because you double something 30 times and now it's a billion times better. You know, 10 doublings, it's a thousand, 20 doublings, it's a million, 30 doublings, it's a billion. And so when Kodak failed to jump onto digital cameras, they had the first mover advantage, the first patents, and they ignored it because they thought of themselves in the paper and chemicals business from photography. Well, it put them out of business, it bankrupted them. The last three Ds are, uh, are uh, dematerialization, demonetization, and democratization. So these technologies invariably, they dematerialize things, right? This is how uh, the digital camera dematerialized film and the physical camera, how Netflix dematerialized the video tape and Blockbuster, right? Ate Blockbuster for lunch, right? And when you digitize and dematerialize something, you automatically turn it to ones and zeros and it demonetizes everything. The incremental cost for creating something is effectively zero. The cost for transmitting it is effectively zero. And then it democratizes these things. They become available everywhere on the world. And so my first blog ever on, and you can go to diamandis.com slash blogs or blog, and you can see all my blogs. My first one back, I don't know when it was, seven, eight years ago, I was talking about the six Ds of the finance industry. 
and um, how we're going to see the same process go on with with Bitcoin, um, where it's it's basically digitizing it's digitized currency and energy, and it's going to you know dematerialize a lot of institutions and uh, demonetize and democratize access to this. So um, there is a point of no return, and I think we're almost there, where there are enough players with enough stake in the system, and it is, you know, we're going to have regulatory challenges, institutional challenges for some time to come still, but there's a tipping point, at which point it's irreversible. Um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of the way Mike Saylor puts it, um, and uh, I, I do believe that Bitcoin equals abundance in many ways, that as we're uplifting every man, woman, and child, unless they have a financial system uh, that, is, that is available and accessible to them, independent of what regime is in power, they can't build wealth. They can't uh, hope for a better future. And so I think we're going to start to see uh, a, a large number of populations and individuals begin to adopt it. And we'll see those pioneers like Mike Saylor and like Jack and like many others who are going to be out on the front line. But it's always been the same. The stuff that we take for granted today uh, was a crazy idea, right? The day before something is truly a breakthrough, it's a crazy idea. Uh, and no one wants their, their uh, dominance disrupted, and least of which, you know, the major banks and financial institutions of the planet. But just like Google, when Google came in, no permission was asked. And at one point, it was like, when's the last time I gone to a library? I have no idea, right? We're going to see the same kind of transformation when it's just that much easier, better, safer, cheaper, uh, and accessible. That, uh, you know, I think obviously Lightning Network is important and, you know, reducing fees and proof of, uh, of stake and all of these are, are movements in that direction. But we're seeing... The ecosystem identify challenges, solve challenges, identify challenges, solve challenges. And at some point, you know, the old guard will fall in line or be disrupted. Awesome. Uh, I cannot stress this enough to our viewers. Go sign up for Peter's blog. Like it, it costs you nothing and you are going to get so much smarter the way you break down science, it you, you essentially take it down to first principles, these very complex issues, and you explain why it's important, how we're going to get there, and what needs to be done for us to get there. So I highly recommend you guys go check that out. Thank you. You have a book coming out with Tony Robbins. That's now on my reading list. You mentioned Lifespan. That's been added to my reading list. And Gerard K. O'Neill is one of your mentors. I very selfishly want to ask you this is I'm, I've never studied physics. It's always been a topic of interest. What is a physics book that you would recommend for a complete noob? Oh, goodness. You know, I would actually probably go to the Khan Academy versus read a book. Uh, okay. The Khan Academy is amazing and it serves all ages. Sal Khan does a beautiful job on any element of physics. You know, there's some great books by Richard Feynman, who is a extraordinary uh, Princeton physicist. But, you know, you can sort of like pick subjects, read it from in, in Dr. Feynman's words, but then go to, go to Khan Academy to really make it fully understandable. Thank you very much for that. I, I have my homework and my studying to do. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And the other, other two things, uh, dmanis.com slash blog is uh, 
longevityinsider.org. And then the other one, uh, which I love is futureloop.com. Uh, Futureloop is like every day, here's the converging technologies transforming whatever industries you're interested in and where the future is going. And it's just, you know, again, it's my means to help people really hone their mindsets. What do you want to learn about? What do you want to be thinking about when you're going to sleep? You want to think about Ukraine, another murder, or you want to think about like, wow, that's incredible what's going on. Absolutely. Peter, thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. Pleasure, guys. This was by really fast. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we will have to invite you back. We'd love to have you back. But in the meantime, everyone, please make sure to go check out the incredible work Peter has done. Educate yourself so that next time we're all, we're all back here, you're fangirling out the way I have been for the last hour 15. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Have a fantastic day. Be well. Thank you, Peter. Yeah.